0: Amen. Everybody give it up for Jesus. Come on. Well, you may be seated. Make your way to the front here. Open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 7. A part of ministry is always being ready in season and out of season, and I love Jared, and so that's why we have to lift him up in prayer because, you know, you're not expecting that. You have a class, and then you have to uh, get ready for chapel, and here your vehicle breaks down, and you got a class later on in the afternoon. What are you going to do? Hey, come on. It's no time to cry now. It's time to put your faith in God and get to work, be ready in, in season and out of season. And uh, he's trying to, <clears throat> excuse me, do his best to be back here for class. But those are the kinds of things that uh, you know you may not you know be expecting. But the Lord says you can handle those kinds of things. You can make it through the times that you face like that. And if you can uh, take it, you can make it as the old saying goes. Well, today in Acts chapter 7, we're going to continue our story with uh, Stephen, one of the deacons who is appointed to be a leader in the church. And lo and behold, what happens to him? He gets arrested, wrongly accused of things. And Joe, sit up here in front for me, please. It's always that pole that makes it hard to see you. And so what we need to see in the Pentecostal handbook today is that God worked through Stephen, one of the new deacons, in a mighty way and that he was the first Christian martyr. He was the first one to give his life in the church and he was stoned doing so. And if you remember, as we read Acts chapter six, it talks about uh, last week. It talks about how the Greek and Hebrew widows were fighting amongst themselves. And that's when the apostles said, "Hey, man, the church is growing. There's thousands of us now. We can't just be about these kinds of things." Now, I told you before that some pastors may use and abuse that to say that they're never to be a servant, and that now they're supposed to be somewhere off in an ivory tower, having their laundry done by the people of the church, having their grass cut. No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this principle right here. As a leader, only do what you have to do and delegate the rest to those who can do what you don't have to do. That is really a key of delegation. So if I am... um, say, good at the soundboard, and I can train somebody to do it. Should I keep doing it or train somebody who can do it? So is it needed in the soundboard? Do I have to be there? The pastor, with all of his experience, is that where he has to be? No. So let's get somebody else to do it so I can move on to the next thing. That's delegation. So think about... um, Jackie, your uh, life group that you lead with the Latinos, and uh, there are things that start to happen. One of the first things that Nancy did in our home Bible study uh, as we moved even into the church and these things was have people be in charge of the coffee. You do the coffee. Is that something you have to do? No, you don't have to make, somebody, uh, make the coffee for everybody. Are you more than willing to do it? Of course. But if you can get someone else to make the coffee, now you can greet the visitors, talk to more people, and do things that no one else can do, and that's to be a leader there. Because they're visitors, they're not leaders yet. You get to interact with their lives, but you can now have somebody start making the coffee. Something so simple as that allows the ministry to grow. Well, that was the need, they filled it. Seven mighty men of God, they're named in Acts chapter 6. We went through the requirements, they had to be full of the Holy Ghost, they had to be full of the wisdom of God, they had to be dependable, responsible, and all of those things. And lo and behold, now it's time for them to get that responsibility, and they're doing great. And so they start going out doing the preaching of the Gospel. we see signs and wonders following them. Does it all work out for them? No, Now they're arrested. Now they're getting in trouble. and then we see this with Stephen. He gets lied on. They start saying that he's talking about destroying the temple. That's where Acts chapter six leads, uh, ends rather, with him being arrested put before these leaders, and now they're deciding what to do with him. They're no longer just leaving it to chance, as it were, as Gamaliel said before. Let's well, we'll see what happens. No, that's not on the table anymore. Uh, they're going to decide whether or not they're going to kill him, basically. They're, they're ready to kill him now. And we see in Acts chapter 7 this entire uh, sermon that he gives in his defense. And I don't have time to add a lot of points to it, so please be patient with me as I just read it and just add a little bit as we go on because the the passage is, is many, many verses and there are so many things that are brought up. So I just want you to hear it as we're going through the Pentecostal handbook, chapter by chapter. I want you to know how to apply this to your life. Put yourself in his position. Think of yourself as a new deacon that's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom responsible and you're preaching the gospel and now you're being lied about and you're on trial and they're deciding whether or not to kill you look at acts chapter 7 verse 1 then the high priest asked stephen are these charges true and the charges that were brought against him were obviously lies He was going to destroy the temple, or that they were going to change the law, or that these things were going to happen because of the church and its growth. And that was not true. There was a partial truth that Jesus was going to come back and establish his kingdom. It's partially true that we didn't need to sacrifice anymore. It's partly true that the Jewish people weren't the only ones now who were going to be in the kingdom of God, Gentiles. But as you're going to see in his sermon, as he defends himself, it's all about the Jewish God. It's all about him. Yahweh hasn't changed in other words that's what Stephen is saying Yahweh is doing this our God the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Moses and 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 Joshua and David our God is doing this the God of our prophets and then that's going to be so important to remember not only in the times of your persecution if you ever put into a place like this but in all that you do it's for God The God of heaven and earth is with us. The God of the Bible. The God who spoke in times past to the ancient ones. Isn't that something when you change the terminology a little bit? It sounds really cool now. Sounds epic, doesn't it? When he spoke in the times past to the ancient ones. That's how God was moving in history. And so the priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this, he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. He's going to honor them with those titles of respect. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Look, that's right where he takes it, to the beginning of the Jewish people. Right there. Hey, guys, to our father Abraham. What I'm saying to you is about the God of our father Abraham. Do you guys get that point? Because I almost just want to preach on that right now and then talk about the details next week. Almost do a two-part series because if you don't understand Stephen's heart right now, if you don't understand why he's a deacon, you're going to miss the entire purpose of this. And if you don't understand as a deacon how he defends himself, you're not understanding the message of the gospel. He's a deacon in charge because he wanted to serve his apostles, his elders. He wanted to help. And he's preaching with signs and wonders, boom, of power. People are getting healed. Demons are getting cast out. And now he's being persecuted. And the moment he's getting persecuted, he brings it all back to the Bible. He doesn't bring it back to his education. He doesn't bring it back to philosophy. He doesn't bring it back to the opinions of men. He's saying, I know who God is. It's the same God of, of our father, Abraham. So please get that today. Please understand we're serving the living God. And if we give our lives for him, we gain eternal life. Those who lose their life. For Christ in the gospel gain life, don't they? Those who hold on to it lose it in the end. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God, of our, uh, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Now, if you notice, I just added all the scripture references here in the passage for your own study notes. You can usually see them with little numbers or letters at the uh, at the side of your Bible or somewhere like referenced after the words. You guys know what I'm talking about when you can see here the little uh, numbers and letters. So I just put them in there so you can know where the reference is. That's Gen- Genesis 12.1. Uh, So now talking about Abraham, he has an encounter with God. Now understand this. Abraham is a pagan. Everybody came from Adam and Eve. And then after Noah's flood, everybody came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth and the children of of them. Okay, so nobody else came from uh, Noah and uh, his wife except Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then those three had wives and then their children. So we're all a descendant of Ham, Shem, or Japheth going back to Noah. And and Noah was a descendant of Adam, obviously. Okay, And so now Abraham came from the line of Shem, um, uh, the Semitic people. And so he's living as a pagan in that land. And God speaks to him and says, now I'm going to start a new nation with you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land, and that's talking about Israel, where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants, after him, would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. four hundred years, For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. So he says... I know the story of Abraham. This is it. God shows up to him, calls him out of his country, brings him to this land and says, I am going to give it to you as a promise. Though he does not even own one square foot, literally a square foot of land, God says, this is all going to be yours as far as you can see. And he says, your descendants are going to be as many as the grains of the sand are in the desert here and as the stars in the sky. And he doesn't even have one child. We could stop right now and talk about the story of Abraham, couldn't we? Now notice this. They have no Bible in front of them. This is all from memory. How would you describe the story of the Bible? How would you give somebody a breakdown of it? This is how we should do it, exactly like Stephen did. Well, here's how it happened. God spoke to Abraham. God did a miracle with him, gave him a child, gave him the promise of land. God did something great in Abraham's life, and God made him the father of the Israelite people, and eventually, through Jesus, the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, now Gentiles are brought in, and so there are billions of Christians who call Abraham their father. Wow. Wow. Isn't that a cool way of summarizing the Bible? Could you do it? Could you do it to a Hindu who had no idea about Christianity? All they know is their genealogies, their names, their locations on the map, because they have a long history with their religion. Would you be able to say, let me explain this to you. Let me tell you where our people come from. There was a man named Abraham of the Chaldeans. He lived in what would be now known as Babylon, Iraq. And God called him into what is now Israel. And God gave him a promise, you know, and you go through the story. Could you help somebody understand where we come from? Now, notice this. You can never be an anti-Semite or anti-Jewish and a Christian. Everybody in our Bible that is a star of the show is primarily a Jew, and the entire Bible is written by Jews. So there's no way you can hate Jews, including Jesus, who was a Jew, came through the line of David a Jew, and call yourself a Christian. So any of this white supremacy and these kinds of uh, Nazis you see in America, they are sinners on their way to hell. They have a false version of Christianity, and they're burning the cross. That should just tell you they're stupid right off the bat as well. And so they're a cult of Christianity. They are no more Christians. Christian, then I'm an NBA starting basketball player, okay? So they are not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Jewish people. And there's a little subtle doctrine, though, that slipped in during the Roman Catholic Church that even Martin Luther and the Reformers held on to. And we always got to remind those Reformers who like to make heroes out of Calvin and Luther is that they took on the Catholic hatred of the Jews, and so we have to renounce that as well. Luther killed the Jews when he became in charge of the state. They were anti-Semites. They were not kind to the Jews. The Roman Catholics were not kind to the Jews even up until partnering with Nazi Germany to share power over Europe. They, as the Pope and the leaders and the bishops, they're partnered with Nazis. They picked the wrong side. And so that is satanic to its core. And I love to remind Roman Catholics of the sins of the Pope as as well, and as well as those who are reformers and love to idolize Calvin and Luther and these guys. Uh, they were anti-Semites, and so we need to pray that that never comes into the church. The Bible says those who bless Israel will be blessed. You can get the book by Dr. Michael Brown, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, and talks about the change in the Christian church as they began to hate the Jews, and some of the inquisitions not only were towards us as Protestants, but were towards the Jews who wouldn't convert. They would make them eat pork, renounce their their law or they would put them to death and they burned them just like they did us as Christians and that is all of the devil. Can I hear an amen to that? And that is why the evangelical Christian, who is not reformed in their theology, has been the best friend of Israel, fought for them in World War II, and up until this time has helped restore them to the land. And all Jewish people who are up to date know that the evangelical Christian is their best friend. The evangelical Christian is their best friend. And so um, we don't want to be an anti-Semite, and we don't want to have that false doctrine of the Reformation, which is, Replacement theology, which teaches the church replaced Israel and the people of God no longer have a purpose in the Bible. That now it's literally just the church, and we don't believe that. We believe the long the land belongs to them. We believe their genealogy is blessed because of God, and God has plans for them in the end, with the 12 tribes being uh, witnesses 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes for a total 144,000. So tell a J Dub that it is not a special group of J Dubs that get to go to heaven and the rest are. On earth. No, the 144,000 are 144,000 Jews that are in time witnesses because they see what the Antichrist does. They realize now that they've missed the first coming of Jesus and he's about ready to come back, and the revelation comes to them and they go out and become martyrs for Jesus. This is the story of Abraham. It's important. And notice that God also gives him a prophecy about the future that his people will be enslaved in a certain nation. We know that turns out to be Egypt and that they're released uh, 400 years later. In another part of the Bible, it says 430 years in total. The 30 that is different is the time of persecution from Ishmael to Isaac and then then their time going into Egypt. So it's a total of affliction of um, Isaac. Isaac for 430 years, the people of his children, and the 400 were specifically in Egypt. That's something you guys can learn later, but I just wanted to tie that in as well. He says, but I will punish that nation. They serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of the country and worship me in this place, Genesis 15, 13 to 14. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Now, what we just learned right here is how it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That is how the Jewish people differentiated their God from the other gods. Uh, they would not speak the holy name of God. They would say, our God, so there's many that are, you guys are calling gods, and you use this word God, you know, uh, Elohim or Theos or whatever in the Greek language, or Eli, you know, like in Aramaic. like That's how Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachani that's Aramaic. And they're very similar to Hebrew because they're a Semitic language. But what they would do without having to say the sacred name to describe who their God was. They're saying, our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's our God. That's, our, that's the one God we worship that came through that line. And then we know that Jacob has the 12 tribes, the 12 patriarchs. Verse 9, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, thus fulfilling this beginning part of the prophecy that God had told Abraham that they would be in bondage for 400 years. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. Now, I always love to say this because people love to give Joseph a bum rap and say that somehow he deserved to be thrown into a pit for telling his brothers and and parents about his dream. That is stupid. Never say that as a part of your preaching. Never bring that in. Joseph was a man of God from beginning to end. He served and loved God. His heart was pure. He was telling the dream as it was given to him. It was those who hated him that came against the dream and threw him into the pit and thus were actually a part of fulfilling the dream. And so God used this as a principle, what others mean for evil, I will mean for good. We're not divine fatalists. We do not believe, since we're talking about the Reformation, which is uh, tomorrow is their 500th anniversary, and we're thankful for Martin Luther breaking away from the Catholic Church, but there was a lot of non-Calvinists that did as well, and Luther and Calvin were of a different generation, but it's now known as Calvinism more than Lutheranism, but anyways, Calvin really trying to you know, hone in on this idea that God's always predestining things, both bad and good. God is the one choosing people in salvation, not their own choice, et cetera, but this makes God out to be a moral monster. So not only do you have God rescuing Joseph from the brothers uh, as a part of God's plan, but now you have it's part of God's plan that the brothers beat Joseph and sell him into slavery. So is God both the author of good and evil? No. Our God is always good. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so they'll show you a scripture in Isaiah that says, oh, he brings the evil, he brings the good. But the word evil there is talking about punishment, the day of disaster. God brings the day of disaster, but he doesn't actually bring about sin. He's not the author of sin. And that is what Calvinism makes God out to be, the author of sin. Because if he's ultimately in in charge of all decisions, then it was his decision that Adam sinned. There's no other way about it. It's my decision what the stuffed animal does. I can't blame the stuffed animal. And they try to use Romans chapter 9 to, to assert that by belief by saying God can do whatever he wants with his pots. That has to do with national calling. God can choose a nation like Israel and make it his nation of blessing and then curse the other nations. That's his choice. But even those nations that were cursed and thrown out like the bad lump of clay, they're still giving the chance by the nation of God to come and repent. If they would have repented, they would not have been judged and deemed like that. So the Bible is very clear that God wishes all to come to salvation. He wishes all nations to be discipled. Okay. Amen. God so loved the world, the whole world, that whoever that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Joseph goes there. God knows it's going to happen. But God uses it for good. He does not make the brothers do evil. They do the evil, but he uses evil for good. Does everybody get that? And he will restrain evil when he wants. So he will not allow everybody to be a Hitler. He will restrain evil people, but he does not bring about the evil. Now, verse 11. Then a famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit on On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After uh, after this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, excuse me, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So now because of this famine and Joseph has been in that place of leadership, Jacob's family, 75 in all, come to live in Egypt. They are now spared. And that is going into what God had told Abraham at the very beginning. They're going to be in a nation and become slaves and persecuted. Now, at verse 17, it says, As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Now, notice that. There's going to be a promise of deliverance, but the first part of the promise of this enslavement has to come. I believe that Israel... And by the way, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Jacob is schemer. Israel is chosen prince of God. I believe God does this through the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as an example of what sin is like. So Egypt becomes the example of bondage. They become the living parable, as it were. And it's not that God takes joy in their suffering. He just wanted to world the world to see how bad sin was, how bad it was when people were in charge who didn't worship the one true God what it looked like when man tried to be God and that's what the pharaohs were at that time and then God delivers them and then shows the world his great power he shows how powerful he is that he can judge the great kings of the earth like he judges Pharaoh like he brings all the plagues upon them like how Pharaoh's army dies in the Red Sea so I literally believe That this part of history is what all fiction tries to be, the story of good versus evil. I believe this is the foundation of how we understand the story of humanity. What Israel goes through here sets us up for the human history of good versus evil. I just personally believe that. That's in the heart of God. And that's why Abraham was given that promise that they would be persecuted yet delivered and come out of that stronger as as a great people. Okay, then a king, and uh, it says, uh, let me just go to verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came into power in Egypt. That's Exodus eight. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn baby so that they would die. So we know that abortion or infanticide is of the devil. It's totally demonic. Happened before the time of Jesus. Happened before the time of Moses. And now it's happening before the second coming of Jesus. Think about every major covenantal move has always come with the death of children. The, the covenant God uh, is going to give the Israelites through the law, the 613 commandments. You know, Moses is going to get him on the mountain. All of this is, uh, is, is before it happens. The prelude is the killing of children. Before Jesus comes and fulfills the new covenant is born as the Messiah to live and die for our sins, Herod has all of these children killed in Bethlehem, and then now before Jesus comes back again, the death of all of these millions of children. We should see that as a pattern, not necessarily a sign that the Bible says to look for, but we can see it as a pattern. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him, and we know the story, she puts, uh, uh, the children here put, uh, you know, um, Zephora, isn't that his sister, Moses's sister, Zephora, I need Jared to help me out here. Look up Moses' sister. I believe her name was Sephora. She takes him uh, with the permission of the mom, Moses, puts him in a basket, sends him down. I believe it's the Nile. What's that? Miriam, Miriam, that's right. Uh, Zephora, look up who Sephora is. Sephora is somebody in this story. Well, we'll figure out who she is. But Miriam, that's right. And then who was his brother? Aaron, thank you. Seven daughters of Jethro. Okay, so that's his wife then. Look up Zephora and see if that's who Moses marries, because he marries into uh, Jethro's family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. You can break down Moses' life in three, to, uh, three um, parts of 40. 40 years as an Egyptian, 40 years in the desert, and 40 years leading the people of Israel. Did we find out that was his wife? Yes, so that was Moses' wife, Zephora, not his sister. Thank God. Amen. He didn't marry his sister. So we see now the first 40 years of Moses' life is going to be in the house of the Egyptians being raised as basically a uh, grandson of the Pharaoh. So the daughter of Pharaoh takes him in, and that would make him the grandson of Pharaoh. Does everybody get that? And so we're going to keep going. Now, remember this. This is Philip. This is all, I mean, Stephen rather than this is all from memory. This is his defense. Isn't this powerful? He is telling the story of the people of God. Let's not get lost in this. This is him before the entire judgment. This is him before the leaders. They're going to decide his fate right here, so he's laying it down. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other one, excuse me, the, but the man who was mistreating the other, pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you, th- are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And this whole story is found in, in Exodus 2, 11 through 14. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And then verse 30, after 40 years had passed. So you notice how they're going to tell you the 340s there. The first 40, he's growing up there in Egypt. He tries to rescue an Israelite. So he must have known something about his destiny. He must have known since he was delivered, he was going to be a deliverer. He thinks he can do it now by killing an Egyptian who's abusing one of his people, but the uh, Egyptians obviously don't want that. And then the Israelites, more importantly, reject him and the revolution he's trying to start. They're actually like saying, who made you a judge over us? Who put you in charge? So now he flees. He marries Sephora, has two children, and after 40 years have passed, while he's there, what happens? Verse 30, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, now notice, the angel is the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate visitation of our Jesus. The angel is our Jesus burning in the bush with the fire around him, speaking to Moses. That's what we believe here. This is, uh, this is Jesus coming through the burning power of the, uh, the the burning bush by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to speak to him. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, and and I believe there's only one mediator between man and God. Okay. Jesus came in the flesh to show us how he had always been in the spirit, always speaking to us. He is the Father's voice to us. And he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Exodus 3.6. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, "Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt." That's Exodus three seven through ten. This is the same Moses who had. Re- Excuse me. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words. Now watch. Him. This is a good preacher right here. Watch him play on the words of their rejection. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He, sent, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. They said, who made you our ruler and judge? And God said, now you go there and tell them I made you their ruler and judge. But add something in there, deliverer. Tell them I've made you their deliverer. So God did that. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Who just caught the third 40? Who caught it? Isn't that awesome? Those are learning devices of how to memorize things, breaking down things into smaller chunks. So if you were a Jew and you wanted to tell the story of Moses, what would be one of the best ways to do it? Break it down into three, 40-year time period. Tell the story of Moses, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness in Midian, and 40 years leading the people of God. Now you understand Moses. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. I love listening to the preachers of the past. Does anybody here want to be a preacher like Philip? Anybody? I'm just wondering. I mean, are you kind of more impressed with the ones you see on TV now? I mean, is this kind of like just lame preaching? Is this not as good as what you see? I won't name any names, but is this, is this not as good as the, as the ones you, you see at conferences? Because to me, this is how every conference speaker should preach. Where's his opinion? Where's his story about his, his puppy dog? Where's, where's his, you know, his, his, his uh, illustrations? Where does he start to say, now I'm going to act this out? No, preachers know the power's in the Word. Can you have skits and dramas and all that? Yeah, it's not sinful, and it can be helpful at times. But even then, when Jesus told the parables, the power was in the Word. Jesus didn't say, now, Peter, I want you to pretend you're the good Samaritan. I want you to pretend you're the thief. You know, Judas, you know, you, you know, don't, you know you're not going to have to try too hard at this. This one's going to come easy to you, you know. He doesn't, like, start doing that. He just tells the story. The Word is enough, the pictures that come through, the power of the Word. And here, um, Philip is a great orator. He's telling the whole story of the people of God. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, talking about Moses. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. There's a sermon right there. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. That's the heart of a backslider, isn't it? That's exactly why Hebrews talk so often about backsliding because it's written to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, and it's warning them, don't you backslide like these people did. Don't turn your back on God. Mm, that's deep right there. They rejected Moses in and and their hearts and they turned back to, uh, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Verse 40, they told Aaron, who we now know as Moses' brother, what was Moses' sister's name? Miriam. See, we're all learning together. What was his wife's name? Zephora. There you go. Make us gods, Aaron, who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Exodus 32, 1. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. Now, notice Philip again. Now he's gonna pull out another. Follow me, Joby. Come on, track with me, baby. He's gonna pull out another example right here. He is going to show them in the first rebellion. With Aaron in the desert, when their hearts turned back against God, they went to idolatry. He is going to use that as his launching pad to say that's what the Jewish people did all then throughout history and why they were taken captive, and then he's going to pull it right back to Jesus and his crucifixion and say, that's why they're crucifying, that's why they crucified him, and that's why they're not accepting him now. That's why you don't want him now. It's because your heart's turning against God. You're making your traditions your idol. Instead of worshiping a golden calf, you're now worshiping your traditions. But he's going to show them that all of this point in history, from this point, from Aaron, all the way to Jesus, the Jewish people fought with idolatry in their heart. And it was always God and something else. And what did Jesus say were probably the two biggest idols that, that, that now we would be facing for the next 2,000 years, the idol of self and of money. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So right there, he knew that you just reduce all idolatry down. It's to self-worship. And then when when we look at how we want to be in charge of our life, one of the most powerful tools that we have for self-worship is money. And that's why he said you can't love God and money. You can't serve both. You will love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. So now verse 41, that time, that was the time they made the idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. Verse 42, but God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Oh, hold on. That didn't happen in the the desert. They didn't start worshiping the moon, the sun, and the stars, did they? They only worshiped the calf. But notice how this preacher makes the leap. He's going to now go, not just to what happened there in the desert, but what's happening all throughout the time of the book of Kings and Chronicles, all during the time of the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were turning their back on God to worship idols. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Here it comes. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Raphon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Babylon. The Rastafarians, man, always like to talk about Babylon. And they want to say America's Babylon, man. We're following God now. Babylon. No, that that is uh, incorrect, but they have a partial truth. That spiritual Babylon is anything that follows uh, uh, anything other than God. So the book of Revelation talks about Babylon becomes a world power again and that there's rulers of Babylon, but it's not America. It's going to be a one-world government that America will be a part of, but we can say it like this. Babylonian systems are antichrist in nature because it's either God's way or Babylon's way. Where was the Tower of Babel made? In Babylon. That's where it comes from. So Babylon has always... represented the place that's antichrist. It's God, not God. C.S. Lewis said it like this, it's God or everything else is Hinduism because Hinduism incorporates every possible belief system into itself. So it's God or Babylon. But notice how the leap is made here. Amos has nothing to do with Moses in the desert. But you can see what God himself had said to, to uh, Amos, bringing it all together. Idolatry started in the desert the very first time you all did this, and you've kept doing it just like your ancestors. So who gave Uh, I keep wanting to say Philip. Lord, help me. Who gave Stephen the idea to collaborate, to bring together all of the Jewish people of his day back to the time of Aaron, to all the paganism of that day? Who gave Philip, God help me, Stephen, who gave Stephen that idea to do that? God did, because that's how the prophets did it. See, see. on Sunday, I look like a superstar. On, on Monday, I look like a dud. This is where you're like, man, my pastor's just like me. He messes up all the time. Because how many times have I called Stephen Philip? No, that is, yeah, and I, and I was confused myself. Yes, his name is Stephen. Who are we talking about today? Stephen, thank you. I'm just, I'm, I'm not any, um, anything you see in me is not a superstar, I'm just a light that is shining because Christ shines on me, I'm, I'm not the sun, I'm the moon, amen, but I want to say that in such a way, because you guys, you know, if all you see is preachers on Sunday, they look like they have it all together, but then you get them on a Monday, you know, after the big show and everything, they're a little bit more tired, the brain doesn't seem to function as fast, you know, and then especially now when I'm trying to preach, what, 50 some verses, <laughs> it gets a little bit intimidating, But the idea is here, you know who we're talking about. We're talking about Stephen. And not only in Stephen's sermon, is he about ready to make that whole correlation, you all do this crazy stuff. But haven't we already heard Peter do it three other times? You all making these big generalizations, y'all be doing this. Your ancestors, you're just like the ancestors who do this. And guess what? Didn't Jesus do that? You kill the prophets. You're even guilty, Jesus said, of the death of Abel. He said, even Abel's blood cries out because of what you do. Because once again, it all comes back down to God's way or not God's way. And everything that's not God's way is satanic in origin and wicked and evil. And all of it should be condemned together. And that's what he's doing here. He's showing them that. Now watch this. Verse 44, he pulls it back to the time of Moses. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant of the covenant law with them in the wilderness so the the ark of the covenant how it was built with the ten commandments put in it with aaron's bud that aaron's rod that budded with some of the manna god told him to do as a remembrance they had an outline of what the temple would be like one day they called the tabernacle which was the traveling temple and it said it had been made as god had directed moses according to the pattern he had seen i could preach on that all day have you seen the pattern have you You got to build what God shows you, and the pattern comes from the Lord. Are you building what God told you to build? See, that's what we're doing in this church. We're following the pattern of the Great Commission. That is our mission, and it's our vision. For the Old Testament saints, it was the tabernacle and the 613 laws, and God had given Moses the pattern on which to build. So have you seen the vision? Have you seen the vision of winning souls and making disciples of the nations? Come on, somebody. After receiving the tabernacle, the traveling temple, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that people, asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. That's what uh, Solomon said in 1 Kings 8:27. As the prophet says, 49 and onward here of Isaiah 66:1 1 and 2, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, excuse me or where will my resting place be has not my hands has not my hand rather made all these things So we went from Moses in the desert, having the traveling tabernacle with the pattern that God had given him in the law, to now Joshua bringing them into the promised land, and then Joshua driving out the enemies of God, coming to the time of David, the great warrior, who then settles the land of uh, Israel with all of the borders that they're supposed to have, minus just maybe a few, and then Solomon builds the temple. So there's the story right there. And then as they build the temple, they're supposed to know because they're monotheists, they're not idolaters, they only believe in one God, and even in their temple, they're supposed to remember, really, God's not always up in this place in that way, because God's so much bigger than our temple. We're not like the pagans who say God lives in a temple, like God is restricted here, and sometimes they would believe that, literally, like this God is in this temple. He's not really anywhere else, but He's here, and then sometimes He might enact something over there, but really, this is the seat of His power, and so we're Minded as, as uh, believers in God that our God is bigger than the whole universe, right? And so this, is, this right here shows that our God can never be subjected to the stupid things that, that atheists say like, Oh, could your God make a rock so big that he couldn't carry? No, because our God's not illogical like you right now. Okay, so our God is not a illogical God. Well, you know, uh, well, who created your God? If everything has to have a creator, well, what we said is everything that has a beginning has a creator. Our God has no beginning; He's spirit. See, boom! It's like it shuts down all these foolish arguments. What they're really arguing against is a pagan God. It's like God, uh, Thor. It's like, well, Thor, where did you come from? Where well, I came from, my Father God. Well, where did your Father God came from? Well, it came from over here. Well, where did this universe came from? Where well, it came from? This superpower that we fight in the event. Avengers. that's the creator of this universe well what created that thing that created this universe You understand? that's the pagan mindset of God and gods our God is not like that our God doesn't even get contained in our temple our temple is just a place for us to meet with him and bring him sacrifices verse 51 and onward now watch how our great preacher here uh, Stephen makes the application you stiff necked people whoa what happened here bro Well, how do we just go from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all that to you stiff-necked people? But now you understand it, don't you? He's making his point. What was his point? I wish right now I could give you guys a pop quiz, and it would be worth whether or not you would get a Dairy Queen Queen treat or something, or your favorite taco place, you know, your taquiera. Is that right, your taquiera? No, what do you call it? Tacaria, there we go. So you win tacos. Man, my wife made the best tacos the other day. Like every year we get more and more Latino, I'm telling you, man. I'm like part hood, I'm part Latino. That's why I say I'm like the Cajun, Latino, gringo, you know. But he- here's my thing, uh, southern Cajun, whatever, you know. So, so here's my thing is I really wish you guys could now explain to me Why does he do this? Why does he make that jump? I don't need you to answer right now, but just think about it. Why does he make the jump from telling the whole entire history to boom, you stiff-necked people? I hope that you get the point that I said from the beginning. What he is showing them is he is a true Israelite. He's not going to tear down their temple. That's not what he's there to do. He's not there to get them to worship some other god. He's not there to have them commit idolatry by worshiping a man. We're worshiping the Messiah, not because he's a man, but because he's God in the flesh. He's the one who showed up in the burning bush. Before Abraham was, he was. That's what he said, right? Before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said. So they're wanting them to understand, he's, uh, not only uh, uh, Stephen here, but obviously with Peter in previous sermons, they're wanting them to understand, these Jewish leaders, that they're really fighting against God. They're fighting against the God that they say they worship. You say you love Abraham, but you're now killing the one that Abraham was waiting for. A greater deliverer, a greater deliverer than Abraham is now here. Remember Moses back here said that he would, that God would send one like him to the people. Let's go back up here and see the promise. Uh, He said in verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. That's like the center of it here. I know I went over it, but hopefully you guys are catching it. The prophet is God in himself. It's the one that was in the burning bush. It was the one that was meeting with David. The Messiah is God, in other words. The Messiah is Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah is Yahweh. Whoever confesses Jesus Christ as Yahweh is saved. That's why he tells the story here. He's trying to tell them, I'm not against you. I'm not against Jewish history. I'm not against the temple. But I'm against the idolatry that you have that now makes your tradition your God, that has you blinded to see you can't see Jesus. And it's the same kind of idolatry the Jewish people have always had. They've been missing God this whole time. Do you all see that? Can I hear an amen if you see it? Amen. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You mean the circumcision that God gave Abraham was an example of the circumcision of the heart that would spiritually one day happen with the Messiah? Yes. So he brings it up and he says, like Abraham needed to get snipped, snipped. You need your hard heart to get snipped, snipped. You're not getting it. Your ears are uncircumcised. Your hearts are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Like which ones? Like Aaron, starting with him. When it was time to be delivered and time to have a Holy Ghost party, they got buck naked and started having orgies around the golden calf and became like pagans. Like the ones who always complained against Moses and wanted to go back to Egypt because in their heart they turned away from the living God. Like the ones who didn't believe that we could take the land, the 10 negative spies that only saw how big the giants were and not how big our God was. The ones that always turned their back on God. The one like Saul who went to a witch of Endor to try to conjure up Saul, uh, 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 Samuel. You are like these people. You are like the ones who continually, like Solomon, who had hundreds of wives and concubines and worshipped Molech. You're like these Israelites who sacrificed their own children to these false gods. You are just like the ones who killed Jesus. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. God was speaking through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and you resist Him, and you've always been resisting Him, and you're resisting Him right now. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? That's why you're persecuting me. That's why. That's what he's saying. That's why I'm here. I'm here because you're persecuting me just like your forefathers threw Jeremiah in a pit. Just like they persecuted the prophets. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. You were a part of these men killing the righteous ones, uh, killing the prophets who was predicting the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. See, look at that. You have received the law. That was given through angels but not obeyed it. God used the angels to give Moses the law when he was on the mountain. And yet they didn't want to obey it. When the members of the Sanhedrin, this is the ruling class of the Jewish people, heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God. And when he saw the glory of God, what did he see? And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. We've heard the Holy Spirit just a few verses earlier. I mean the verse before, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is here now. He looks and sees the Father, and Jesus is at his right hand, the triune God. Just like at the baptism of Jesus, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit at the first martyr in the Christian church at his death. The glory of God. Jesus standing let me say it again, verse 55. but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at his right hand. "Look," he said, "I see the heaven, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God." That's Daniel's prophecy. The son of man, the one that the ancient of days gives all the rulership to, and everyone worships him and serves him. But what do they do? At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, drug him out of the city, and began to stone him. Can you imagine what it would be like to be stoned? And then put yourself in the place of the one doing the stoning. Being stoned is not a quick death. Rocks coming at you. Some smaller, some some bigger. And literally, you can't get away from it. You are doing everything you can. And eventually, you're knocked down. And then you're covering yourself. And the rocks are coming against your arms. And it's breaking your arms to where your arms are now just limp. Until it breaks your face. Until now, then you're covered in the rocks. And they keep pummeling you with them. Now imagine doing that. God actually commanded this as a form of punishment But this was supposed to only be done with the heart of Christ for discipline and judgment on the nation where the person deserved it. So imagine the kind of anger these people had to have to actually throw the rock with that force. I mean, a gun, you just pull a trigger. I mean, that's not really showing the anger you have to have to kill somebody. This one, it's like equal to the anger you have to have to kill them. You have to take everything you have and throw it as hard as you can. And just think about now your rock splits his head open, but you're not satisfied. He's still alive. And so it shows the great wickedness they had to have to take judgment in their own hands to use something that was meant to protect the community of Israel against evil. They're now using it against the people of God, against God himself, as it's going to be known later. You're you're persecuting me, Saul. What you do to them, you're doing to me. That's what Paul said. I make up what is lacking in the suffering of the body of Christ. Not that Jesus needed to die over and over again for salvation, but Jesus's body was still suffering for the world. And he says, I'm taking up the suffering of Jesus now as the body of Christ suffers. Now think about that. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Why are they at the feet of Saul? Because Saul's the assistant of Gamaliel, and it seems like in the previous chapters, Gamaliel is in charge and helping make major decisions now. So Saul must have the authority from Gamaliel to be there. For this man to die. So the idea that it's happening right before Saul, Saul's probably the administrator and going, "Yep, we're good with this. Sanhedrin, you're good. Everybody's good here. All of our leaders are good. I'll take responsibility if anybody asks what happens. I stand here with Gamaliel's authority. Go ahead. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Now this is why we know the deity of Jesus. Can you pray to anyone but God according to the Bible? Hello. Can you pray to anyone but God according to the Bible? If you pray to a man in the Bible, what are you called? Idolatry. If you pray to an angel, what are you called? An idolatry. So it cannot be done in the Bible in right standing with God. You either pray to God or you are an idolatry. Who is Stephen praying to? Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, talking to Jesus, Do not hold this sin against them. See, Jesus talked to the Father, but we have to go to the Father through Jesus, right? So now he's talking to Jesus, and that's what we're supposed to do. Come to the Father in Jesus' name. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And that was the term that they used for death, and they um, would would play off of that term as well because they would believe in a resurrection, that you're going to come back from the grave. Do we see the story? Pulling it together from chapter 6 and 7 what we see is that with great growth comes hard work and relational difficulties and severe persecution. So the church is growing. The Pentecostal handbook tells us we should believe God for the church to grow and to multiply. But when it grows and it multiplies, it's going to cost us some hard work. It may have relational difficulties, like with the Greek and Hebrew widows. And at the same time, we may face severe persecution. Only those who are wise and full of the Holy Spirit will stand strong to the end. Do you want to be counted with Stephen and give your life for Jesus? Do you want to say, man, I'll take care of tables. Yeah, here, can I help you? Can I do this? Can I do that? But when it's time to preach, I will be as bold as the lion. As the Bible says, the righteous are as bold as a lion. We will be as harmless as doves, but as shrewd as serpents. We will will be like lambs led to slaughter, but we will be mighty warriors for the Lord. When it comes to preach and teach, we will not compromise, but we will not fight against our persecutors. We will willingly lay down our life for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. And Joe B. and Lawrence and Oscar, would you go in the back, please, and get ready to shut her down. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. The name that's above every other name, that name by which we are saved. We come to you in his name today and ask you to give us the same boldness to preach and do what the disciples did, to do here what Stephen did, to lay down our lives for the gospel and to not hold against our persecutors, for us not to hold against them the persecution they bring against us. Let's just pray for a few moments for those who don't like us as Christians in this culture whether it be the LGBT movement, the entertainers, whether it be the Muslims. And I'm not saying every Muslim doesn't like a Christian. I'm just saying like their movement in general is against Christianity. Those uh, even, you know, sometimes you may witness to a Jewish person or whatever. Just any religion that doesn't like us, let's pray for them. Lord, we ask you to save them. Have compassion on them. May they come to know and love you. We will not hold against them, Lord, uh, the way they talk about us or look down on us. Uh, let's pray against anything in our culture. The politicians, uh, the, the political movements, the social movements that come against Christians. They sometimes say because Christians want to see uh, you know, the churches established with men being over their families. They call that the patriarchy and that we oppress women. What a devil's lie. What a devil's lie. What is a, what is a woman to do if she takes care of her children? Could she go to war and really do that? And if a mother doesn't take care of her children, how are we going to have more families? So literally, if you didn't have a 21st century culture, what would be the easiest way to protect a society for men to be in charge? Now, that doesn't mean that men are le- uh, better than women. We're both equally made in the image of God, male and female in the image of God. But why would we look at the idea of a strength of a man and the kindness or the nurturing of a woman and pit that against each other? So, Lord, we pray against those who look down upon us. Because of us believing in the roles of sexuality or uh, the roles of the home, Uh, Lord, we pray for them. And Lord, we pray for anybody in our personal life. Take a few moments. Anybody in your personal life that may come against you for serving Jesus, a family member, somebody maybe from a Roman Catholic background or just somebody that doesn't like you serving Jesus or having a call on your life. They want you to, uh, you know, go do something else. Come on, I came to this country. I worked hard for you to go to college, become a teacher, a A doctor, a lawyer, I don't want you to go to ministry. How are you going to get paid? They may look down on you because of that. Forgive them like Stephen did, but yet be bold to preach, pray, and plug away. Everybody say this with me, including those in the sound booth. I will preach, I will pray, and I will plug away in Jesus' name. Let's give it up for Jesus as we say amen.